I always start. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's pray real quick. Father, we, uh, we all need work in our lives. We need your hand in our lives. We need, we need you to turn our hearts, turn our thinking. And where our thinking doesn't agree with your thinking, uh, we just pray, will you please bring us into conformance with your will? Father, please, uh, we confess our sin and just ask for your mercy and work and uh, and ask you to make us like Christ. Will you please be with us this morning? Will you please keep us from error? And uh, Father, please cause us to think on your things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to do a quick review real quick from last week, just to kind of get us ready. Looking at the book Ordinary. And the subtitle to the book is Sustainable Faith in a Radical, Restless World. Just to kind of review last week, uh, you know, Horton talks about how my life has to count, my life has to make a mark, my life has to leave a legacy, my life has to make a difference. And uh, I know for me, this, this resonates because uh, a lot of times I, I know I get caught up in my little me kingdom that Paul Tripp talks about, and this is the way I start thinking. And when I'm thinking this way, I know at least for me, I'm in that kingdom. I had a cousin who was about four months older than me, and he was very musically talented, and uh, I was wrapping up a degree in biology at WT, not knowing what I was going to do with it. He was performing at Greenwich Village, working on his first album. He was very successful as a singer-songwriter, and uh, um, he knocked elbows with some pretty big people. You know, won a lot of awards, a lot of gold records and stuff. And uh, today, if you look at Google Earth, I live about 1.2 miles from the house I grew up in. And uh, I went to ordinary schools, made ordinary grades, I've always worked ordinary jobs. And sometimes I look at that and I wonder, am I thinking too small? Am I being petty? Have I not worked hard enough? Is there some reason that I did not leave and go to New York City and record and do all those things? I mean, assuming that I had the talent to do that, which, you know. But, but still, I think we all kind of get in that world sometimes where we look and we say, I live a mile from where I grew up. Last week he talked about how it used to be in medieval times it was okay to be a lay person, but the truly spiritual, those who wanted a direct path to God, became priests, monks, and nuns. And uh, today with, you know, Protestants, we have converted that to the truly spiritual, become preachers and missionaries and worship leaders. And uh, that the rest of us, if we're pursuing normal careers, uh, normal things in life, well, we're, we're just not quite as spiritual as they are. In fact, sometimes there's pressure to get into those things and uh, to, but you know, you're, you're thinking about yourself here. You need to think about God's things. We're going to come back to that some. Uh, 
Something that I, I just happened to notice was uh, Horton says these, these things tend to be one of the newer versions of works theology. One of the newer versions of works theology. And he says changing values keep us from forming genuine, long-term, meaningful commitments that actually contribute to the lives of others. And by pressing for the grand story of my life, I actually avoid opportunities that I have every day. So the point of his book is sustained growth in faith over the long haul, sustained discipleship. Today we're going to talk about ordinary is not mediocre. What does it mean to be ordinary? What does it mean to be mediocre? Are they synonymous? If you would, please turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I want to enrich your lives with another one of my stories. And, uh, when I was, I was working at Emerald National Bank, and right across the street was this little barbecue stand, W.O.'s Barbecue. W.O. served those silver dollar sandwiches, you know, little bitty bun with a little beef on it. And so I started ordering two of those sandwiches so, you know, that I would get a good lunch, <laughs> a good lunch. And uh, uh, so anyway, I always ate two sandwiches. Well, one day, one of my coworkers and I decided we'd go around the corner to Van Dyke's Barbecue. It was a guy named Red Van Dyke. had a barbecue stand on 6th Street. And uh, Red was quite a character. And I went in there, and I said, uh, I said I'll, uh, I'll have two beef. And he says, have you ever eaten here before? And I said, no. And he says, well, more falls off the plate here than most people put on the sandwich. You sure you want two sandwiches? And, okay, I saw what was coming, and I was not going to admit that I was wrong. And I said, I see, I'll give me two sandwiches. He said, are you from Oklahoma? And I said, no. And he said, well, you eat like an Okie. And so uh, if, you've, if you've ever seen Callie Gann eat, well, you know. And so, so, uh, so I said, two sandwiches, you know. So he handed me this plate. He knew that, that I was in trouble, and I knew that I was in trouble, and uh, he knew that I knew I was in trouble, but I wasn't going to let him know that, you know. And I looked down here, and here, here are two sandwiches on Texas toast, four slices of Texas toast, about a half pound of beef, you know. And uh, so I go, to my, I go over to my table, and I, it used to be I didn't eat very much. Back in those days, I've overcome that with patience and perseverance. But, <laughs> but back then, I didn't eat a lot. And uh, uh, I walked out of there, I was in pain. I mean, real pain. <laughs> I just, I was, that hurt really bad. But uh, I, I learned a lesson there. I think it serves as kind of a metaphor in my life. It's always served this way. When I stop to think about it, uh, there's always been more falling off my plate than most people got on their sandwich. And I have to admit that about my life. And uh, although I wasn't a rich and famous recording artist, uh, when I start thinking, when I quit looking at what's on my plate and start looking at what's not on my plate, I'm questioning God's provision. And uh, so I, I try to every once in a while think about that. Um, second thing that happened when I was young, you know, there's this, that was one experience that kind of turned my head. So another thing that really turned my head 
was when I was young, I was trying to figure out how to get from point A to point B, how to quit being this poor, struggling guy to being somebody who, you know, maybe had a country club membership and a house in Wolfland or something. And uh, one day a man, an older man, said this to me. He told me, he said, said when his dad died, they were going through his father's effects, and they came across his father's savings passbook. And they started going through it, and he noticed that it was just these constant deposits into that savings account. Every payday, put a little bit of money into a savings account. And at the end of his father's life, he said that savings account was the bulk of his father's estate. You don't have to be Warren Buffett to make that work. You just have to be diligent. You just have to do it. Um, your, your nest egg is, is the amount you invest times the yield you get on it times the time. Principal times interest times time. That's going to give you your nest egg. And uh, it works. I've seen it work over and over and over in lots of lives. And you don't even have to make a lot of money to make that work. You just have to be diligent with those deposits. You don't always get to choose how much you're going to deposit. You can't always control the yield. But there's one thing you can control, which it might be the most powerful factor in that formula, and that's time. Start early. And people who have put diligently put money into savings for 30, 35 years come to the end of their lives and they've got a nest egg. It won't buy the house in Wolfland. And you don't get your name or a write-up in Forbes magazine, but you have a nest egg, okay? Just an ordinary little thing. So does ordinary equal mediocre? The answer is no. Lots of excellent things come out of ordinary events. Okay? So, with that, now that your lives are richer, uh, let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to read about the Arameans. The Arameans, I think, blended with the Babylonians later. When everybody came back from Babylon, they were speaking Aramaic. Okay? So that's how big this is today, that the king of Aram and his captain, Naaman. Now, Naaman, captain of the army of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now, the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is, with, who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now, and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. 
And when it happened, and, and it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was furious, and went away, and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand, and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parpar the rivers of Damascus, Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he returned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Naaman's at the top of his game. He's, uh, he's quite a guy. He's quite a captain. He's going around conquering the world for Aram. And uh, he has the king's attention, and the king respects him quite a bit. He's sending over 900 pounds of silver, over 180 pounds of gold to Israel. You know, he's got the king's respect. He is the top dog next to the king. You know, one of the top dogs. And he goes to Israel. Something common, very ordinary, is about to happen in Naaman's life. And it's going to bring about the cleansing of his leprosy. And it's not the River Jordan. It's a little girl. (sighs) Who loves the people who took her captive. And she's faithful, and she tells Naaman about her God. And 2,500 years later, we read about it, and we still don't know her name. But the Lord wrote her into his story. So... um, In looking at Horton's book here and trying to figure out, is ordinary mediocre? Or is there excellence in ordinary? We don't like ordinary. Naaman didn't like ordinary. We'd have the same reaction. We don't like ordinary. And uh, um, what, what Horton's aim in this chapter is is to say there's nothing wrong with ordinary I want to sell you on ordinary I want to tell you that ordinary is a good thing because most of us live right there we live ordinary lives and and instead of saying that this is a bad thing instead of taking the normal connotations that we have with ordinary uh, maybe we ought to embrace ordinary 
And he says, he says that the aim of, of uh, that, what he feels the aim of this chapter is and of his book, is he wants to encourage us, encourage us to an orientation and to habits that foster deeper growth in grace, a more effective outreach, a more sustainable vision of loving service to others over a lifetime. It's not a call to do less, but it is a call to invest in things we give up on when we don't see an immediate return. Not a call to do less, but a call to invest in things we give up on when we don't see an immediate return. You know, going back to the savings account example, it takes time. And you say, you know, we get impatient and, and we quit making those, day, those every payday deposits into our savings account because, I mean, it's so small when it starts. And the growth you see in that is going to happen over a 30-year period. It's not going to happen right there at first. Even compound interest, you don't see it happening right there at first. It's after 30 years, all of a sudden you go, whoa, <laughs> you know, something's happened here. And so uh, that, that would just be maybe one, one way to think about the things you invest in, people's lives you invest in, and, uh, and ordinary things every day that you do. And we're going to come back uh, a little bit here in a minute. Horton says, God wired us with passions, and he pronounced it good. He wired us with passions and goals. Our typical response is when someone says, you need to be ordinary, you need to embrace ordinary, as we're saying, but I don't like ordinary. I was born in Amarillo, Texas. People tell me to grow where I was planted. I'm going, man, I, you're just asking me to throw in the towel here, man. I'm in Amarillo, Texas, and, and that's my reaction to it. If you're having that problem, if you're saying, you know, maybe there's something else I'd, I'd like to do or there's some dreams out there I'd like to, like to fulfill, uh, Horton is saying, I'm not trying to kill that. That's important to know. Horton's saying, I'm not trying to kill that. If, uh, if you've got some, something out there that you really think needs to be done, he's, he's saying, that's, that's good. And in fact, he, he calls it, I'm all in favor of reading to my children the book, The Little Engine That Could. You know, He's all about that. Uh, but he's, uh, he's, he's, I think where he comes down in this chapter, though, is instead of thinking it has to be some huge undertaking, some, uh, it's like going from, like Walt Disney, you know, he wanted an amusement park his daughters could go to and be safe. So he started an amusement park and wound up with Disneyland. You know, that's what we typically think of as here's a successful venture. Horton says, I think this is what he's saying. We need patient cathedral building. In our lives and in the lives of the people around us, we need patient cathedral building. And he talks about the Cologne Cathedral in Cologne, Germany. It took 632 years to build this building. And the people who started the building knew it was going to take a long time, and they knew they would never see the completion of that building. They intended for it to be that way. But how do you build a cathedral over 632 years? All these people show up for work every morning, and they do the work, and they, and they build that cathedral. Uh, 
it's, it's, it's that patient cathedral building. And what kind of patient cathedral building is going on in our lives? And uh, so how do we attain that uh, patient cathedral building in our lives? And he says it's with a commitment to daily routines. And the daily routines that he recommends are these. They're in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think sometimes we get caught up in discussions of all the great and glorious things that are going on around us. Maybe we spend a lot of time talking about uh, more academic things and all. You know what? I, I, I had to be reminded not long ago. Kelly had to remind me of this. You're supposed to enjoy a little joy with being a Christian. I don't know why she felt called to say that. <laughs> we don't talk about that much. We don't talk about the joy of being a Christian and the peace we have because we're in Christ. And I'm sorry, but I think I'm about to have a coughing fit. Is there something about this? You guys who have chapter 3, get ready. When you get up here, you start coughing, apparently. But um, he, uh, he says what happens to us as we get caught up in our new programs, our constant innovation. And we... Uh, um, think calls to be uh, radical and missional and all the things that come along in our, in, our, in our Christian culture that say this is the next big thing. This is the new movement. You've got to get on board. He says what, what he feels is that that actually uproots growth of the fruit of the Spirit and that people don't have time to uh, set and meditate and just constantly slowly grow in the Lord's nurture because we're constantly uprooting them with a new program. We're constantly uprooting them with the next best thing. Okay? And so uh, with that in mind, and, and also uh, uh, there's one point he makes here, to what end do we pursue excellence? He says you've got to have a good object. You've got to have a worthy goal to do patient cathedral building. Uh, the example that comes to mind for me is when you think about back when Arnold Schwarzenegger was, was really popular, and you think about uh, Jack LaLanne, I think on his 70th birthday, he pulled six tugboats and a motorboat or two across the San Francisco Bay. And... Uh, Somebody puts that much time into bodybuilding and puts that much effort into what has... They, they have to show up at the gym for about two and a half, three hours every day. That's what somebody like Arnold Schwarzenegger would do. And their whole lives are focused on bodybuilding because that's who they are. You look at that and you say, there's no way I'm putting in two and a half, three hours at the gym every day because it's not a worthy object. Okay not taking anything away from them. It's just an example of you got to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. 
And so your, your object has to be something that has value to it. What is your object for your patient cathedral building in your life? And the, the, what Horton says is the glory of God and the good of others, which is the Ten Commandments. The glory of God and the good of others. So you look back at our story of Naaman, this little girl shares the Lord with Naaman. His glory, the Naaman is helped, the good of others, and the Lord is glorified. The glory of God and the good of others. True excellence has others in mind. It's not about me. It's not about how I build my cathedral. You need to be outwardly turned with this. Don't start getting in on yourself and saying, how do I make myself grow? It'll be outwardly turned. So what's a good expenditure of your time if you want to work for the glory of God and the good of others? This is one that has a little controversy to it and is one that I've had to struggle with quite a bit in my life because the easy answer is, well, you need to become a priest or a monk or a nun or you need to quit your job and radically sell out to the Lord and buy a pair of chacos and go to Africa and drill wells. Okay? I flew into Chicago one night with a co-worker. We were going to some training. Saturday night, O'Hare International. There are people everywhere. And I said something about it. He said, I always wonder what makes Chicago work. So I started thinking on that. And because uh, I don't have a lot to think about, but I started thinking, and over the years I've thought about, what makes a place like Chicago work? And you have this one insignificant person gets out of bed in the morning, and he reports down here to the public works, and his boss says, you take a crew and you go down to this intersection, and shut down that intersection, you guys get down there because we have a leak in the sewer down there, and we need you to get down in there and fix this. So these guys go down there, and they dig a big hole in the middle of that intersection, and they get down, they work on that sewer all day long. He goes home at the end of the day, and the problem is fixed, and he has to take his clothes off in the garage because his wife won't let him come in the house, and he goes in, he showers out, he has a little supper, and he helps his kids with their homework, and he gets up and does it the next day. Again, and thousands of people do that, and and those are called secular jobs. I want to present this morning, and I think this is what Horton says: in building the church, Christ gives us various callings. He calls us as parents, as carpenters, as doctors, as friends, as neighbors, as volunteers as citizens. He calls us as computer programmers. He calls us as electrical engineers and pharmaceutical salesmen. He calls us as lawyers. <laughs> he calls us as nurses, sound people, people who assess properties, people who have gift shops on 6th Street, people who do fire safety down at the bomb factory. All these, all these are callings. And when you go to that job in the morning, the fact that you're doing that job, the fact that you're doing that job, you are working in the garden. The act of doing that job is working in the garden. You are, you are helping other people, and 
in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily for the Lord. You're doing this for God's glory. And I, I, after I was, while I was studying this book, I, we've had, we have a lot of frustrations at work. I'm, I'm always about two weeks behind, and people are wanting power, and they're calling and barking. And so a lot of times it gets a little, gets a little frustrating. It really helped over this past couple of weeks after I studied this to go to work and think, you know what, I'm doing this for God's glory. I might be under a lot of pressure. Some of it is fair pressure. Some of it's not so fair pressure. But when I did this, when I do this for God's glory, it changes the whole picture. Am I representing the Lord well to this person? Am I dealing with this person with integrity? Am I uh, doing everything I can to satisfy this person's needs and be where my employer needs me to be? And... Uh, um, so I, I want to present that because we had, we had a men's retreat about a year and a half ago, and this was the very subject here, because there's a big tendency in the church to say, no, you're not doing the Lord's work unless you're uh, involved in all these church activities and after-hours activities. Your job, that's just something you do during the day to pay the bills. A guy named J. Todd Billings is a professor at Western Theological Seminar, uh, Seminary. And he says, uh, Reformed tradition has a wide lens, kingdom vision for the Christian's vocation in the world. A wide lens, kingdom vision. When you go to work, and you work, the act of your working is building the kingdom. Okay? So, how do you build excellence in your ordinary, everyday life? You're that sewer worker who gets up and goes to work every day, and you go down and you make sure that everything is working so that our streets don't fill up with sewage. You drive a white truck down alleys, and you, you empty dumpsters out so that people can bring trash out from their house, and when they come back out there, they'll have another empty dumpster to put more trash in, okay? Our... our are, those are very ordinary jobs. They serve a very great purpose in making our city work like it works. Uh, again, it's a matter of embrace ordinary and know that wherever the Lord has positioned you, that's where you are. And there's a lot of, if you focus on what's on the plate and not what's not on the plate, you tend to take a different view toward it, and you have time now that rather than saying, I don't have opportunities, I've, you're looking at this plate and you're saying, what can I do with this? Um, it gives you time to sit back to and to grow in the Lord and to experience the joy of being a Christian experience the peace of knowing what the Lord has done for you. In a world where we're constantly looking for the next big thing, here's kind of some of the problems that we run into, that Horton feels that we run into. He calls it the warping of excellence. Our pursuit of excellence becomes about us. It becomes about me. And I know I've, I'm really prone to that. It becomes about me. Um, 
we use God's gifts as weapons of mutiny against others and against God. How are you, have you ever done that? Have you ever found yourself using God's gift as something that would... Uh, uh, God does not share his glory. I am the Lord. That is my name. I do not share my glory. And uh, I think a lot of times when we're trying to make some big something happen, it might not be because we want to glorify God. It might be because... It, we, we get to be part of, the, part of the deal. We use spiritual programs to feed our narcissism. I've been hearing that word, you know, that's usually a word everybody says, that's what's wrong with the millennial generation. They're so narcissistic. I've been hearing this word for about 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, this is a narcissistic generation. We really are. And we use a lot of things to feed that narcissism. And, and uh, so that would be a perversion that uh, Horton says we're, we're having troubles with right now. Again, calls to radical and extraordinary. They uproot the fruit of the Spirit. They even become separating factors. We're part of this new movement. If you are truly spiritual, you'll get on board with us and be part of this. Okay, You'll become a priest or a or a nun, or a monk. <clears throat> then the cult of immediate versus patience. Perpetual in- innovation and faithfulness over the long haul are uprooted by this constant new program, by this impatience for immediate return. Well, that's the new stuff, you know. Is it possible that conservative, stodgy old churches could be uh, messing with the garden? So he says a censorious temperament, he calls it the censorious temperament of a stodgy conservative church. It squelches love, joy, peace, and patience. You know, I, I grew up in a right wing church, and when I look back on it, didn't seem like it was a very loving environment. I never <laughs> heard that very much. We were too busy putting things down and saying, no, that's not true. That's not true. We do it this way. We're better than they are. Um, <clears throat> so while you're trying not to uh, grab on to the latest new thing, Horton says, don't miss out on making changes that need to be made. And then, our generation is known for this, I think. Visceral, ill-informed judgments that crowd out gentleness and self-control. Visceral, ill-informed judgments. Have you ever lived in a, have you ever seen anything? I mean, this is the period we live in, so we, we don't live in other periods. So, have you ever seen a time, I know in my life, have you ever seen a time where everything is so visceral? Everything. Everybody's angry about everything all the time. And what that does is, is our judgments are quick and they're harsh. And Horton says, if we would mature a little bit, we would, uh, we would understand gentleness, self-control, letting things cook for a little while. And then this one right here. We put in our own list as something more than what God revealed in his word. 
we add to God's word because we say, if you're truly spiritual, you'll be doing this. And when the God's word never said to do that. We, uh, we have our own definitions of missional living and radical discipleship. And we impose them on God's people as necessary for faith and life. That's going back to what I was saying a while ago about everybody needs to quit their job, get sold out to Jesus, buy a pair of Chacos, and go to Africa. And we, you know, sometimes that pressure gets imposed on people. And Horton, of course, says it's wrong. So how do we, how do we, uh, how do we avoid mediocrity? He talks about mediocrity comes about from not caring at all. I don't know if he's saying that's the sole reason for mediocrity because I don't think it is. I think you can care about something and still be mediocre about it and do it wrong. And how do you define mediocre? How do you know that you've reached mediocrity? Everybody's going to have a different definition of that. I, I would say mediocrity. Maybe a good definition of mediocrity would be the typical chain Mexican food restaurant. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of like it's there, but there's nothing special about it, okay? He says mediocrity comes about from not caring at all. <clears throat> mediocrity also comes about from rust cathedral building, rust cathedral building. I've worked in scouts for a long time, and one thing I know is you can't teach a 10-year-old kid Morse code in 30 minutes. <laughs> you know? takes a little time, all right? But what we do is we get into our rust cathedral building, and what we wind up with is not a good result. One thing that comes to mind that I keep thinking about, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but, but you, know that, you know that tactic of I preach to 10 people, and they preach to 10 people who preach to 10 people, and in five years we've covered the world with the gospel. The thing that scares me about that is you're assuming that the 10 people you preach to are go, all going to go out and preach to 10 people who will preach to 10 people. But you're also not allowing new Christians to become mature in Christ before you send them to the mission field. I would say that's Rush Cathedral building that might, might cause a, a bad result. Um, I don't know if that's the best example, but that's the one that comes to mind. And then for conservative churches, what causes mediocrity is lazy apathy. We just don't care. We just, uh, so you come to work, you're at work, but you're not going to do anything. You're sure not going to do anything above and beyond. You're just going to do what you have to do to get a paycheck, and then you're going to go home. He talks about perfectionism in this chapter. And I had a little problem with this section uh, because I think there are a lot of reasons for perfectionism. He says perfectionism is seeking the approval of others. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that would be one reason for perfectionism. This has to be perfect so that others approve of me. I, I think there, that is one cause of it. But another cause of perfectionism is you just feel like things have to be perfect. The danger with perfectionism is self-justification. Going back to what he said in the first chapter, this is one of the forms of works theology. 
that when you're a perfectionist and you do it perfectly, then after a while you start feeling self-justified. Rather than saying, I'm saved because of Christ, you start saying, I'm saved because I'm perfect. And, I, and if, if you haven't come across this yet uh, in, your, in your Christian thinking, a problem with works theology is you have two kinds of people. You go to a church where works theology, you're going to have two kinds of people. One is I'm saved because I do all the right things perfectly. And the other is you're just living in desperation because you know you can't be perfect. So you either got the self-justified or you have the terrified. And uh, um, that would be a problem with feeling like you have to be perfect. Do you have to be perfect? This has been a big relief for me over the years because I grew up in a church that said you have to be perfect. I knew I couldn't do it. So the big relief of knowing that Christ has paid the price for your sins is knowing that you are free to be imperfect, to be imperfect. You are free to work in Christ's kingdom knowing that you're accepted by God because of what Christ has done for you. Okay? Well, I'm, I'm concerned about whether I covered that topic well or said everything well. It took me about three weeks to figure out what his point was. It was finally, I was telling everybody in the elders meeting a while ago, that it was finally yesterday evening. I went, oh, I think this is his point. So, <laughs> you know, and... Yeah, no, there's page three right there. I thought maybe I even lost a page, so no, I've got it. But that's it. And uh, here's my concern in going through this book. We're going to be going through this book for about the next three months. I think through early summer we'll be going through this book. It's my concern, as we're going through this book, you get what Horton is saying. Is it okay for you to live an ordinary life, and how should you feel about that ordinary life? And what kind of opportunities are on your plate every day to do the Lord's work? And when you, uh, uh, and are you free from those expectations that have been loaded on you at times that you're not as spiritual as everybody else is because of da-da-da? I'd, I would really hope that everybody will be able to take this book and go think these things over and think about what to do in your ordinary life because that's where, that's where most of us live. And uh, I just, uh, I think I agree. I, I mean, it, after going through this and thinking this through, it's okay to embrace ordinary. There's nothing wrong with it. And a lot of excellent things come about because of ordinary efforts. Okay? Does anybody have anything? Any comments? I left three minutes.
maybe. Uh, does this cover, Horton says this, uh, Kelly asked this question last week, does ordinary mean that I can get comfortable? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, ordinary does not mean we get to be comfortable. Because then, then we're getting into the area of lazy apathy. Right. I would like to read something real quick. Anybody else? which comes down to our lives don't belong to us. And, uh, and so our lives belong to Christ. And, yeah. Yes, sir. Exactly. If I don't have a six pack of abs in three weeks, you know, that's it. it. <laughs> it I want to read something here. It, we, there has been some discussion, people saying, I'm trying to figure out exactly where Horton is going with this book. It's right here on the first page. I want to read this quote. And in, in, uh, a guy named George Elliott wrote a novel one time called Middle March. Has everybody read that? Show of hands. <laughs> Aletha has read this. <laughs> Do what? Okay. Was was a lady? Was a lady in the eighteen hundreds? That's right. And more money. <laughs> uh, Horton puts this in front of his book. It's a great little quote. Her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like that of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. So, there you are. Let's go.